I um, poked a little fun at people from the South with their strong accent. I said nobody can hardly understand them. Um, I didn't mean to upset anybody. I want to apologize for bothering um, people in our church who are native North Carolinians, all seven of you. But I do want to get back on friendly terms with uh, the Southerners here. This is, this is my town. This is my South. I love this place, and I love the South. One of the men in our church sent me this story years ago, and I thought maybe I could use it to get back on friendly terms. This has nothing to do with my sermon, but I'm going to try to make it fit somehow, okay? A Texan, the story goes, and a New Yorker and a North Carolina resident were drinking their favorite beverage one afternoon in a North Carolina saloon. The Texan drained his glass of tequila, threw the half-empty bottle up in the air, drew and fired his pistol, shattering the bottle. The other two were shocked at such waste. The Texan simply announced, where I come from, we have plenty of that stuff. The New Yorker, not to be outdone, finished his glass of wine and threw his bottle of wine into the air, drew and fired his pistol, also shattering the bottle. Looking over at the other two with an air of superiority, he announced, Back in Manhattan, we have plenty of the finest wines available. The North Carolina resident drained his mug of sweet iced tea, which is the only drink in this story I'm recommending. He threw his empty mug up into the air, drew his pistol, and shot the New Yorker dead. He then caught the glass on the way down, and he said to the Texan, where I come from, we recycle glass, and we have too many people from New York. (laughs) All right, now the score is even. What I said was in fun, but what would you do if I was really serious? What would you say to someone who really didn't like people from New York or North Carolina or Canada or Mexico. Suppose someone had prejudices toward Hispanics or the Chinese or the British, and you just happen to be Hispanic, Chinese, or from the UK. You ever run into someone who disliked rich people. They're always grousing about those people with the money. Or maybe you've, you've had to sort of listen to somebody rant and rave about those poor people on welfare. Yeah, they're the problem. They go on and on and they sort of ride their hobby horses right into the ground. What if, what if they took it out on you? What if, if you were their target? And it was no uh, laughing matter. What if they didn't like you? How do you respond to hateful words? How do you react to personal criticism? I'm not talking about the constructive kind. We all need more of that. I'm talking about the kind that's demeaning, discrediting. In fact, it gets downright dirty. I'm talking about the gossip mill, and you find out, you discover you're the latest topic. Your words have been twisted, and your actions have been given the the worst 
impossible light, and frankly, it's ugly. What do you do? How do you, how do you react when the intention of the critic is to harm you and not help you? Before you know it, the damage is done. As we enter into the final round of speeches from Job's counselors, that's exactly where we find him. Uh, Frankly, it's getting ugly. By the time you reach this third round, you discover that his counselors don't want to help him as much as they want to hurt him. And at this point, it it strikes me that Job will become a, a saint in the hands of an angry counselor. But I want you to know that one of the most important things about this next encounter with this wise counselor, supposedly, who missed it by a mile, is how Job responds to unfair, untrue, unkind criticism. Maybe you're there right now. Your actions have been misinterpreted. Your words on that campus have been misquoted. Your heart at the job has been misunderstood. And some critic is having a field day at your place of work or, or on that campus or in the neighborhood or maybe in your family circle, maybe even in your church. You're wondering what to do. This chapter in Job's life is especially for you. In Chuck Swindoll's commentary on the book of Job, which is a very wonderful practical study, he He entitles his chapter that expounds on the text we're about to look at, he entitles it this way, How to Handle Criticism with Class. It's a good title, and it's true. In fact, I want to read to you how he opens his chapter with an illustration from our own American history. He writes, Our nation's 16th president was a model of handling personal assaults on his character. Public criticism against him intensified in his final seven years of life. One of his biographers said that Abraham Lincoln was slandered, libeled, and hated perhaps more intensely than any man to hold the nation's highest office. He was publicly called just about every humiliating name imaginable by the press of his day. Names like baboon, a third-rate country lawyer, a vulgar jokester, a dictator, an ape, a buffoon, for starters. Severe and unjust criticism did not subside as his enemies increased. So did the criticism against him. But Lincoln, his biographer wrote, handled it all with a patience, forbearance, and determination uncommon in most men. It's true, isn't it? In fact, history will later vindicate him as one of the greatest presidents we've ever had. He was indeed, as Swindoll ended his introduction, grace under pressure. Perhaps nowhere in the biography of Job will you see that kind of grace any more than in these next few chapters. Not only will we discover, by the way, how to respond to unjust harmful criticism. We're going to get another lesson on how to be a lousy counselor. Turn to Job chapter 22. Eliphaz, in his final speech, 
will deliver five blunders, five missteps. And they can be our own, by the way, and so we want to learn from him too. As you're turning, I find it ironic, by the way, that this will be the last time Eliphaz speaks to Job before he is ultimately chastised by God and told to go ask Job to pray for him so that his sins will be forgiven. He will later be vindicated, Job will, by God himself. Here's how to, here's how to counsel the wrong way as well as respond the right way. The first blunder Eliphaz makes in this chapter, let me give it to you and then we'll look at the text, is this. Condemn someone without taking the time to identify the context. Look at verse 1. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, responded, Can a vigorous man be of use to God, or a wise man be useful to himself? Is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you are righteous, or profit if you make your ways perfect? These words, by the way, are dripping with condescension and pride and sarcasm. Let me sort of rewrite it for you in our own contemporary vernacular. He's saying, Job, do you think you are any benefit to God? Do you think God cares about your claim to be a righteous man? Look around you. Where is God's reassurance that you even matter to him? Can you imagine how painful that would be to hear? What Eliphaz doesn't know is the context. He doesn't know, in fact, Job doesn't either, that God and Satan and the hosts of heaven have never been more attentive, as it were. In fact, God will intervene in a few chapters with assurances on Job's behalf. Eliphaz doesn't know that that context from which Job's suffering has emanated. And, And most of the problem will stem from the fact that Eliphaz has his heels dug in. He's convinced that Job has sinned greatly and thus God is judging him greatly. The truth is, Eliphaz at this point really doesn't care about Job. Job doesn't matter to him. What matters is that Eliphaz is right. Leads me to the second blunder. The counsel is based entirely on outward appearances. Look at verse 5. Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? In other words, Job, the list of your sins is endless. How do I know? Because the obvious judgment of God is endless. Look at you. Your hidden sins are great, and so the outward expression of God's uh, punishment is great as well. It's clear from your diseases, from your losses, from your failures. You are not the wisest man in the East. You are the greatest sinner in the East. Isn't it easy, ladies and gentlemen, to view losses and diseases and failures as proofs of God's discipline? But back in chapter 1, God has actually said to Satan, do you want to test a blameless man? Do you want to test a righteous man who fears me and refuses to do evil things? Test my servant Job. The trials of Job were not produced because he was a sinner, 
but because he was not. Now, he wasn't perfect. No one is. But he passionately hated sin, and he passionately loved God. The text in chapter 1 says he feared God and turned continually away from evil. His trials were not proof he was in trouble with God. His trials were proof he could be trusted by God. Eliphaz is condemning. He's lashing out in anger because of the outward appearances of what looked like God's displeasure. And Job will become not only to God and to Satan and the hosts of heaven and to all of us for all these years. We've read his story for every generation. Proof that it is possible to be in the midst of great suffering and bring praise to God and also be the object of God's pleasure. People who look on the surface of things will never seize that deeper truth. Their view of God depends on the weather, the stock market, the doctor's report, whether or not all four tires on the car can hold air. That's their view of God. That's Eliphaz the Timonite. He appears to be wise, but in the end he's shallow. He does not yet know what Job is learning, that this God is the God who rides upon the winds of the storm, as well as whispers cool breezes to heavy hearts. He doesn't stop blundering with that. In fact, he's already done all that before. At this point, he does something new. This is his third blunder. Number three, he took on the role of omniscient God. In our day, we would say he began to play the Holy Spirit. He's literally going to start making up sins. He's going to start accusing Job of sins Job has not committed. But he's so angry, he can't keep it any longer. He's going to prove Job an unrepentant sinner. It doesn't matter to him if he destroys the integrity of Job in the meantime. The first thing he does is accuse Job of unbridled greed. Look at verse 6. You have taken pledges of your brothers without cause. You've stripped men naked. Now, this was a serious accusation. In Job's day, common decency dictated that that if a man were forced to give up his his cloak as, as a pledge to paying off his debt to a creditor, the creditor would normally return the cloak when it got cold because the cloaks served not only as coats in the day but covers at night. Eliphaz is effectively saying to Job, you're telling a man he owes you something he really doesn't know, and then you're taking his cloak... But then when it gets cold, you're not giving it back. In fact, more than that, he said, look there again, you are stripping men naked. In other words, you are utterly heartless and greedy. You're not only taking their coats, but the rest of their clothing so that they have no covering or warmth in the harsh elements. Job, you are a heartless, crass, greedy man. That's your problem. In verse 7, Job stood up and said, You're lying! I did no such thing! Oh, wait, there's no such verse. 
Job does not interrupt. Eliphaz next condemns Job for heartless unconcern for the needy. Look at verse 7. To the weary you've given no water to drink, and from the hungry you've, you've withheld bread. Job, you've let people starve. What he means in verse 8, which drips with sarcasm, is that even though the whole earth belonged to you, you rich man, you haven't given any of it back to anybody because you're heartless and selfless and bereft of any modicum of care or concern for anybody. And at that point, verse 9 says, Job stood and said, I've got plenty of people to testify for me. You're lying. No, that's not in there again either. No word from this saint in the hands of an angry counselor. No vindication, no defense. Next, Eliphaz condemns him for committing the lowest crime of all. Even in our day, James says this is the epitome of being a fake and a fraud, following false religion. What is it? You refuse to care for widows and orphans. Verse 9, you've sent widows away empty. I mean, they came to you hungry and needy, and you sent them away. And also, you crushed the strength, the health of the orphans. You didn't care about them. You didn't give them the help they needed. They had no medical attention. You, You were so calloused. These orphans had no help, even though you could have given them crumbs. Where'd Eliphaz come up with with all this stuff? Had he heard it from others? Were were enemies of Job delivering little bits and pieces of rumors from people who perhaps had envied Job or resented his purity or felt convicted by his walk? We don't know. But he's convinced. Job, there's no need to hide. Fess up. There was a fourth blunder. And it remains a temptation to all who will counsel another. It's this. Eliphaz tried to pressure out of Job a quick confession. Just confess something. Now, these charges are trumped up. They're fabricated. They're exaggerated. They're not true. Eliphaz is actually working here for whom? The enemy. Satan himself. Not for God. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that one of the chief attributes of the enemy is that he loves to accuse the brethren. He delights in bringing the believer under the, under the cloud of guilt and sense of displeasure from God. Why? Because ultimately he wants you to throw in the towel and withhold worship from the God he despises. So he wants you to quit and join him in accusing God of not being worth worship. Stephen Lawson, in his commentary on Job, wrote these perceptive words regarding the scene between Eliphaz and Job. makes some interesting application. He says, we must carefully distinguish between the conviction of the Spirit and the accusations of Satan. There is a difference. The Holy Spirit convicts us of a specific sin, and He will do so until we confess it then he will no longer convict us about that specific sin because it is forgiven. On the other hand, Satan is a grave digger. 
He uncovers all kinds of dirt from our past, delights in throwing a barrage of sin at us. Sin we may have committed but not confessed, to be sure. But sins we have committed but already confessed. Even sins we haven't even committed. Anything to heap guilt upon our heads. He majors on sin that does not need our attention. And after we confess our sin, Satan still haunts us with guilt. He's like a dishonest car mechanic. Even if he can't find something that needs fixing, he'll tell us something does. So we end up paying for things to be fixed in our lives that aren't even broken. Follow this. He goes one paragraph further. Learn the difference between the Holy Spirit's conviction and satanic accusation. It is the difference between a rifle and a shotgun. The Spirit directly targets areas that need confessing. He is clear, specific, and true. Satan uses a a shotgun approach, firing buckshot at anything and everything that moves. He's vague, generic, and false. Good counsel. The truth is we all have an Eliphaz in our lives. Either the unseen enemy or maybe somebody we can see who reminds us of everything we're not but should be, who piles it on and buries us under the law. As spouses, we can do that, can't we? We know the weak spots. We know the buttons to push, to heap on the guilt. We can do that as parents where where we refuse to add grace to our leadership. We can do that as teachers and, and, and colleagues. We can do that as business partners and classmates. We can refuse to dispense approval and consistently point out the fault. In fact, we can become like Eliphaz. We can be more concerned about being right than bringing hope. Well, these are the blunders of Eliphaz. Number one, he condemned without identifying the context. Number two, he based his counsel on outward evidences. Third, he played the role of the Holy Spirit. That is, he acted as if he were omniscient and knew Job's life and heart. Fourth, he tried to pressure Job into a quick confession. Now, the fifth blunder of Eliphaz will follow through the end of the chapter verses 23 to the end of chapter 22, and it's this. Let me summarize for the sake of time. Promise quick solutions to the problem and ignore the deeper issues at hand. Now, you'd think that a switch had been thrown somehow in Eliphaz's demeanor. Suddenly, he's nice, although his pleasantness still drips with condescension. He says to Job in verse 23, look there, if you return to the Almighty you will be restored. If you remove unrighteousness far from your tent, that is, Job, I know you're hiding it in there. Get rid of it. Look, verse 24, place your gold in the dust. That is, get rid of the rest of your wealth. You probably got it stashed away. Dump it. And here's what will happen. The Almighty, verse 25, will be your gold and choice silver to you For then you will delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You'll pray to Him and He will hear you and you will pay your vows. And note this, you will decree a thing and it will be established for you. That is, Job, you can state whatever you want and it'll be yours. I know, you can name it and 
Claim it. Wow, it went back that far. All the way back to Job. You do this. Oh, you, you've got your ticket. He says, light will just be bathed across your path. It'll never be dark again. You'll have everything you can want or dream. Isn't that great? There's an ancient Hebrew word for those kinds of promises. It's pronounced baloney. Say that with me. Baloney. Now you know a little Hebrew. Just remember when you hear those kinds of promises on the television screen or wherever, you just say baloney and turn the channel. Never mind. Never mind ten graves. Never mind physical effects that are going to dog Job to the grave. Never mind rebuilding your business or your home all over again from scratch. Never mind the memories. Never mind the questions. Never mind the tears. Just name it. Claim it. And look for the sunshine. Unwise counsel is filled with superficial promises. It will not provide the steel you need to brace yourself for the future. It doesn't provide the strength of the Spirit of God so that you can hold your head up and walk into the challenges of of tomorrow. Added to that is the pain of these unfounded accusations And now the trivialization of this pain with these silly promises that are so fleshly and so temporal. But did you notice? I pointed it out twice. Job never once interrupted Eliphaz. Not once. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that remarkable to sit through that? Not once does Job say, who do you think you are? Let me pull out my witnesses. Let me give you my testimony. Let me set the record straight. Let me justify my character. Let me defend myself against these new sensational sins, Eliphaz. You are convinced I've committed. Not once does Job strike back. It's a lesson for us all. I don't know why it is, but in the most difficult times... They may be the times when these kinds of people show up most. It's because the enemy's at work. So be careful. Be on guard. The enemy, like a roaring lion, roams about seeking someone to discredit. You could literally translate that word. Destroy. One revered Scottish Bible scholar, I have every book he's written. He died in the middle of the last century. In his spiritual autobiography, he told the tragedy of losing his 21-year-old daughter and her fiancé in a boating accident. They were both drowned. It was a tragedy heard around the civilized world. How tragic it was indeed. In the midst of his grief, he actually received a letter 
And it said, if you can imagine it, and I quote, I know why God killed your daughter. It was to keep her from the corruption of your heresy. End quote. This is the counsel of Eliphaz. He would later write, this scholar, God did not stop that accident at sea, but he did still the storm in my own heart so that somehow my wife and I came through that terrible time still standing on our own two feet. I have always admired men like the Apostle Paul who stayed the course even near the end of his ministry. You read his epistles and in between the lines you discover that the accusers had largely won the day. Paul was virtually alone. They accused him of false motives, of ineffective ministry, of lacking skill, of manufacturing his office as an apostle, of loafing, of living off handouts, all these untrue. Listen, up until this last week, I would have said that Paul was a leading model for facing ridicule and accusation with grace, with Nehemiah probably coming in a close second until I studied this text in Job. I have a brand new hero for us all. He has endured the most horrific suffering and agony. He is now virtually deserted. He doesn't even know what he's building anymore. He hardly knows the purpose. He's, He's grasping at it. His friends turn against him. And now in this encounter, he is accused of lacking the kinds of things he had spent his whole life pursuing, like character and integrity and purity. But he presses on in faith. Before we look at his response, most of us, if I can go back into history for a moment, have read the biographies of Abraham Lincoln. I have read one in particular called The Forgotten Lincoln, which is just amazing and filled with these hidden truths of his life. It was his refusal to retaliate, his determination to bear up under the strain, which ultimately led history, as you know, to rewrite its opinion of him as a great president. His biographer said that Lincoln developed four ways of responding to criticism. And I want to insert this here before we look at how Job, in effect, puts it into place. Four ways. Number one, first and foremost, he would simply ignore it. He ignored much of it. He considered it, he said, too petty to deserve a response. Secondly, he answered back only if he felt it would make a difference. Sometimes it did, sometimes it didn't. But he would only respond if he felt it would truly make a difference. Third, he formed the habit of sitting down and writing lengthy letters in defense of his integrity and reputation, venting all his anger and emotions, but then he would tear the letters up and throw them away. It's good practice, isn't it? How many of you would like to have an email back, but you hit send? Fourth, he chose to focus on the brighter side of life and kept about him a good sense of humor. You know, one of the things that marks me about Job is as his biography unfolds, it is in how he responds to his counselor. Here he is in the hands of an angry counselor, this saint of God. He has endured accusations that we cannot imagine, all within sight of ten brand new graves 
What makes him even more heroic is not that he's slandered, though, in this condition, but that he refuses to retaliate. Now, the next two chapters, which we don't have time to hardly do anything more than than reference, chapter 23 and chapter 24, you find his response. I recommend you read it slowly. I'll refer to just a few texts out of his response. But he will now respond in verse 1 of chapter 23 to Eliphaz, uh, the Temanite. And, and I would have said, Eliphaz, you're a termite, just to kind of get it off my chest before I went any further. Make me feel a little better, but obviously I'm not Job. First, let me just categorize his response with two statements. First, he will say effectively this, the heavens are silent, but I will trust the heart of God. He laments in verse 3 of chapter 23, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. You notice how he really doesn't even respond to Eliphaz. He just sort of starts this open air prayer, lamenting the fact that he just wished he could find God. He didn't bring all his evidence. He didn't say, Eliphaz, you were wrong on seven points. Here they are. No, he just, he just says, oh, I wish I, could, I wish I could have an audience with God. I wish I could bring my evidence before him. Verse 4, he says, I wish I could present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. That's legal terminology for, for evidence. I've got all the evidence I need. I don't want to lay it out before you, Eliphaz. You don't care. I want to lay it out before God. If I look ahead of me, verse 8, he's not there. If I look backward, I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. When he turns on the right, I cannot see him. You ever feel like that? You're looking everywhere for God. Some sign, rustle some leaf. Do something. Prove that you care. The heavens are silent. However, notice this profound statement of trust in verse 10. But he, God, knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Wow, there you have it. In the middle of this long and rambling lament, this nugget. I don't know which way to turn. I don't know which way to take. I don't know which way he's taken. But I do believe he knows where I'm going. He knows the way that I take. He knows, and I will trust his heart. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. By the way, you can't miss the irony between Job's statement and the trivial promise of Eliphaz. You remember? Eliphaz had promised Job, if if, if you submit to God, he will become gold to you. Job says, no, because I have surrendered to God, I believe when he's finished with me, I will become gold to him. He is purifying me for his own purpose and pleasure. There's another subtle thought as well that even though Job has lost all his possessions and all his gold, Job is declaring his faith when he says, God isn't going to necessarily give me back all my gold, but he is going to make me gold, which is far better. Refined by the furnace, purified by the heat. 
It's better than gold and silver. This statement of faith can be divided into three separate statements. God knows what's happening to me, number one. God knows what's happening to me. He knows the way that I take. God has planned what's happening to me. He not only knows what's happening to me, but he's planned what's happening to me. When he has tried me. And third, God has a purpose for what's happening to me. I shall come forth refined and purified as gold. This text, by the way, was the inspiration behind John Rippon's great hymn, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The heavens are silent, but I will trust the heart of God. Number two, evil surrounds me, but I will trust the hand of God. That is that the hand of God is sovereign, even though surrounded by evil. And all chapter 24, by the way, is is a list of all of the, the sins of mankind, just the cataloging of sins that surround them. Greed and theft, verse 2. Oppression, verse 3. Murder, verse 14. Adultery, verse 15. And more. This is, by the way, an, actually a subtle answer to Eliphaz, who had said earlier that Job was obviously guilty of great sin because he was being punished. So Job, in effect, in chapter 24, in a very clever and kind way, says in effect here, if God always punishes people because of their great sin, then how come so many sinners are going unpunished? Of course, Eliphaz doesn't want to struggle with the depth of that question. Even though it seems, though, that that, that the sinner gets away with his sin and, and the sinner takes heart. He says, ah, no God, I, I, I'll take heart in this. And oh, but God is there in every deed recorded. The saint can lose heart because God doesn't seem to be anywhere near. But God is. And he also takes note of everything. No matter what happens, no matter how difficult, God has not abandoned his sovereign post. And, beloved, God has not, he has not abandoned you. William Frey was an undergraduate student at the University of Colorado. In 1951, he would eventually go on into the ministry. He spent a couple of hours a week reading to a fellow student whose name was John, and John was, was blind. One day, William Frey wrote, I asked him how he lost his sight. He told me of an accident that happened when he was a teenager and how at that point he had simply given up on life. He said, when the accident happened and I knew that I would never see again, I felt that life had ended. As far as I was concerned, I was bitter and angry with God for letting this happen, and I took my anger out on everyone around me. I felt that since I had no future, I would not lift a finger on my own behalf. Let everyone else wait on me. I shut my bedroom door and refused to come out except for meals. William Frey writes, the young man I knew here was an eager student. So I had to ask what had changed his attitude. And he told me this story. One day my father came into my room and started giving me a stern lecture. 
He said he was tired of my feeling sorry for myself. He said that winter was coming and it was always my job to put up the storm windows and that I was to go and get those windows up by supper time tonight or else. And he shut the door on the way out. Well, said John, that made me so angry that I resolved to do it. Muttering to myself, I groped my way out to the garage. I found the windows. I found the stepladder. I found the necessary tools and I went to work. They'll be sorry when I fall off the ladder and break my neck. He muttered, but little by little, he said, I groped my way around the house and I actually got the job done. And John stopped as he told me and his sightless eyes misted up as he said, I would later discover that at no time during that afternoon had my father ever been more than five feet away from my side. I didn't know it until later, but all the while I was climbing up and down on that ladder, ladder muttering to myself, fumbling with the tools and sweating my way through an impossible project in the dark. My father had been beside me every step of the way. John Rippon, in his hymn text, put it this way, Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God, I will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my gracious omnipotent hand. I love this, this verse. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert to his foes, God says. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Even when the heavens are silent, you can trust the heart of God. Even when the earth is filled with evil, you can trust the hand of God even when you're in the dark, even when you don't know which way to turn, even when you're in the hands of an angry counselor. You are still in the hands of your all-wise, ever-near, gracious Lord. Father, thank you for the assurance of these truths that come right out of the life of a man who was willing to stay the course, to respond with grace, to leave the vindication to you, to continue to walk after you and seek your presence, a man who would trust your heart and trust your hand. My friend, Maybe that's been God's message that he's been wanting to deliver to you. And today is sort of the capstone. Here it is, lived out. You can see it in, in living color, in flesh and blood. Pray right where you sit. Thank you, oh my faithful God, that I can trust your heart. That I can trust Thank you, in Jesus' name.